episode 147 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 11th of October 2021. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelan. Hi. Graham. Good evening. And Will. Hello. Let's start with first impressions. Now, the Wheel of Meh gave us Regolith last time. Now, Regolith describes itself as a modern desktop environment that's built on top of Ubuntu, GNOME, and i3. I like to describe it as i3 on easy mode. Graham, you have actually got quite a bit of experience with tiling window managers. So what did you think of Regolith? I do have quite a bit of experience. Though I used Kwin tiling scripts to turn my plasma desktop into a tiling environment and i love that i have an ultra wide display so i'm able to have three or four columns i can use a grid layout and i I know all the shortcuts which are incidentally the i3 shortcuts for rotating and changing between master windows but the interesting thing about where i come from is because it's kwin you can still do all the kwin stuff so for example i often hold down alt and right-click on a window to resize it. And Mm. that's the bit that I really missed from Regolith. There are shortcuts to do it. But firstly, I should say, it's really nice. It's nice to actually use a distribution that's purpose-built for tiling. Um, And I really think tiling should get more mainstream attention. I think it's a really good way to work. And out of the box, it kind of works. It's a bit of a learning curve. I generally liked it, but missed what I would say were probably probably hardcore tiling people would say well that's the whole point you shouldn't be using your mouse and you shouldn't need the prompts that i found were missing and i also something else i the last thing i'll say is i really miss being able to fall back on a normal wimp kind of environment i can click on yeah i think ultimately that is my takeaway from it and the spoiler is that if you want an introduction to tiling then this is a great way to do it but tiling is just not for me essentially Failing, I feel that you may well be the same as that. You didn't get very far, did you, in a VM? I suffer from migraine, and I'm convinced that every time I have a migraine, part of my memory gets deleted. So therefore, I'm only operating with a fairly small buffer most of the time. And to give the fact that, first of all, in the VM I had, I didn't set it to 1080p because my, well, my monitor is 1080p, so I wasn't going to go and waste the whole thing. I had a 1600 by 900, and that helper application showed up the first time and every time I expanded the menu it expanded so far that I couldn't get it back down again the only way I could get it to like come back to normal was to restart the VM again because I just I didn't know what the shortcut was to to crush it or whatever I didn't even know what half the things were it's like and everything is tied to the bloody windows key which is kind of okay, except that fired up the K menu every time on my desktop environment because I was not focused in it fully all the time and it just drove me insane. I just I was like, why? Why am I doing this to myself? I hate it. Now, you did help me out a bit by the fact that you said, no, no, it's because you're not 1080p. So I then set a full screen one, set to 1080p, and yes, it was better. But my God, why would you do that to yourself? Like, why do, why do you hate dragging a box into a corner? I mean, <laughs> I'm not constantly using the mouse or maybe, well, I think I found that I use it an awful lot more than I think I do. Yeah. But... Why would you have a graphical environment if you don't use the mouse and like move windows about? I don't understand. Efficiency, efficiency and speed. If you take the time to learn all those shortcuts and let them become muscle memory, then it is way faster than pissing around with a mouse. But I can flick between my hold. Like I've got 
three actual monitors and I stacked them in a three virtual monitor setup. So technically nine monitors. And I can flick around those with the various hotkeys, using the arrow keys and the combination of Windows key, shift and control. And that's fine. That's enough. I don't need columns. But imagine more of that. No. <laughs> Phelim, do you use apps in full screen mode? Or do you use them as kind of floating windows? Windows. And do you have them in the same place on every single v- desktop? So I have two consoles open and they sit on my right mouse monitor. My center bottom mouse monitor is Firefox. My center middle monitor is Kate in the development mode. And the top monitor is for contact. Telegram sits on all three. And I use a, a browser on the middle set for when I'm doing dev work on a web page or something. And I can refresh that there. And then Mumble would sit down on number three. Yes, it's very particular. <laughs> That's essentially a tiling window manager you're using. They're static. They're always there. That's how I use it as well. Right. All a tiling window manager does is let you skip between them without using the mouse, really. But I, I just use the hotkeys to shift up. And I can even shift windows about with yeah. the arrow keys and stuff again you can do that with a tiling window manager that's the fucking point of it i can but it takes away the window decoration and stuff it does weird things where you don't have full control like i just wanted to click on an item in a menu and i couldn't because there's no menu <laughs> you had to i had to expand this helper box to try and find the shortcut yeah that's why i think kwin's tiling scripts are really good because you get the best of both worlds and also i have four of those virtual desktops three of them are tiling and they're always the same static layout of browsers and terminals but the third one i have you can turn it off on one virtual desktop so i have one virtual desktop for stuff that i find much more convenient to remain windowed and floating over the desktop usually graphical stuff like gimp or critter or a photo browser which i just don't want to take up too much screen real estate will's been too quiet he clearly loves it well i I don't hate it. I think the choice of using GNOME Flashback as the sort of underlying OS is an interesting one because as soon as you get into the preferences and the settings, you're into a GNOME window, GNOME app, and there's no close button. And that confused me for a little while. I was, oh, God. So, yeah, okay. So I had to look up what's the sh- shortcut to close a window, and it's not Control-Alt-F4 or whatever it was. It was like Super Q or something. That stumped me, you know, for a few minutes. Sure, I, I just opened a browser and Googled it, and and there was the answer. But I tested it on the Haunted laptop, which is only, uh, I think, well, it's probably not even 720, and had the exact same problems as Phelim did, that I, I got this thing open and I couldn't close it. And it was over the top of all the other windows. And you couldn't, I couldn't open Firefox and search with it on the screen because there wasn't enough room to see what the text was underneath it. So that got a little bit tedious. But nevertheless, I think I'm I'm sort of somewhere between Graham and Phelim here because I do like my desktop laid out like in a tiling manner. And I had used to know what all the, the GNOME shortcuts were to move windows to specific places. And I've got my Mac desktop with similar shortcut keys now. It's not as good, but it's okay. Could you just repeat that again, please? <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's okay, it's bearable. But I still I see the ideal behind i3, and I get it, and I could, with some effort, really go to town on it. But I just wedded to Windows with uh, menus and clicky-closy buttons and, and things like that. So uh, I don't know. 
I think it's worth investing some more time in because I do see the efficiency savings there. I, it, it would be so nice not to have to pick up a mouse just to do basic stuff. So, yeah, I don't know. I'll, I'll, I might spend some more time with it when I get my Linux desktop back. I mean, it is well done. I don't want to be too harsh on it in the fact that it is actually done well. It looks nice. I mean, it's a well-finished piece of kit, but I just know, just know. There was a gap on mine. I was running in a VM as well. There was a gap between the panes, which I didn't like. You could see the desktop behind it. You can change that. There's a shortcut for it. Ah, okay. And I really do wish, like um, Will mentioned the GNOME settings, I wish that there was some setting, you could access the settings for the tiling from a, a, a GNOME settings panel because I had to go to, oh God, some X resources file in a custom location for i3 just to be able to change the default key from the Windows super key to alt which is what I'm used to. Ah, that's what you did. That was a smart idea. Yeah, but it is nice to be able to have, like, connecting to Wi-Fi networks and, you know, your basic settings in a graphical settings manager rather than having to resort to editing config files. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it seemed weird that, like, you press Meta W to bring up the Wi-Fi config screen. Like, why? how often are you doing that? You need that shortcut. It just seems strange, but hey, who am I to judge? Another thing that I love about it is that it is a desktop environment on top of Ubuntu. You can download the ISO if you want and install it fresh, or here's a PPA. That should happen more, I think. It doesn't need its own ISO. I mean, fair enough, provide one as well, but if you want to just check this out, here's a PPA. I think that's a great way to do it. I was scared of trying the PPA, though, because I knew they'd probably never be able to remove it again, and then <laughs> I'd be better off just trying the ISO. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. I definitely agree, though. I remember Paddy used to say it back in the Lex Luddite's days, where, you know, there's a lot of distros out there that really all they are is just a slight customization. Yeah, and especially if you're going to be built on Ubuntu, why not just make your PPA available? There was one slight difference to Ubuntu that I noticed, and that was that there was no SnapD available, uh, sorry, installed, pre-installed, I should say, which I thought was interesting. I didn't miss it, and it wasn't sat there taking up resources. Although, speaking of resources, when I did a PSAUX, there was a lot of sleep fives in that list. <laughs> That's the solution to any problem on Linux, isn't it? <laughs> Good spot. Multi-threaded. <laughs> I think ultimately... We would recommend this to someone who wants to try out tiling and wants to get their feet wet with it and spend the time that it takes to get into it. Or, or would we? Do you think you should just try out proper i3 and not waste your time with a halfway house like this? I don't know. I, I tried Xmonad once for a while. I found that, even though it's harder probably, because you don't have any kind of helper at all and desktop to fall on, I found it easier to just kind of get myself into the world of tiling window managers and just read upon it and then accept that's the way that it was going to be. And this was a bit of a halfway house between the two, so you're never quite committed to it. So I don't know. I think I found the shortcut keys on XFCE to allow you to move windows to specific places on the screen. I found that that was good enough for me. And I think I would probably err on the side of XFCE. What have you done to him, Joe? <laughs> If we had a poster, that's what would be written on it. <laughs> <laughs> right, let's find out what we're going to talk about in two weeks' time then. Let's spin the Wheel of Meh. Here we go, pretty colours. What's it going to be? What's it going to be? Oh, no. Oh, no. This is something that had been suggested before, 
and was suggested just a few days ago by someone else haiku oh for fuck's sake this is going to take more than the just less than an hour that this segment is designed for i feel fun fact though it was the first bootable distro i ever tried yeah this is not linux this is totally fucking different so yeah i'm not looking forward to this one but then i kind of am because it should be exciting Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash late night Linux and see why Linode has been voted the top infrastructure as a service provider by both G2 and TrustRadius. From their award-winning support offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. Linode offers great price-to-performance value for all compute instances, including GPUs, as well as block storage, Kubernetes, and their upcoming bare metal release. Linode makes cloud computing fast, simple, and affordable, allowing you to focus on your projects, not your infrastructure. So go to linode.com slash late night Linux, create a free account with your Google or GitHub account or your email address, and you'll get $100 in credit. That's linode.com slash late night Linux. On to a bit of admin then. And first of all, thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to latenightlinux.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to get in contact with us, latenightlinux.com slash contact. But remember, email. That's the best way. Let's do some feedback then. The first one is from Popey, and he said, on this week's Late Night Linux, someone wrote in and suggested Signal Desktop on FlatHub is maintained by the Signal Foundation. It isn't. It's completely misleading the way FlatHub shows who maintains and who develops software. Something we fixed on Snapcraft a long time ago. It's pretty poor UI. And he's right. It says developer Signal Foundation, but then publisher, you have to click see details, and then that takes you just to GitHub. So, uh, okay, so who the fuck is actually packaging this thing then? The NSA. (laughs) It is poor UI. It is misleading. I think he's totally right about that. I would say that it goes beyond poor UI and it's sort of deliberately misleading so that it seems it conveys to me more authority than that app should have. And in the case of something like a supposedly secure messaging app, that's kind of important. I'm reluctant to attribute malice to what is incompetence. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to call this incompetence necessarily, but, um, you know, poor practice, let's say. I don't want to believe that it's deliberate. I want to believe that it's an oversight. Someone who just thinks, well, yeah, obviously, that's the developer is the developer of the software and we're just packaging the software and here's a link to it on github i don't know i did i did a very quick snap search for signal in ubuntu and it's yeah it's snap crafters is the people that it's the publisher so i mean publisher makes sense it's people who publish it it's not the developer but yeah if, if it's so hidden on because we very easily tricked into that thinking that it was the actual signal people that was releasing it yeah well either way it would be good if it was uh clarified but who is Snapcrafters? That is a question I was asked, and I still couldn't tell you the answer to that. I'm pretty sure it was Popey, but I'm not sure. <laughs> well, no, because he had his own account. Like it's it, Snapcrafters is surely just a ragtag group of people who are volunteering. Yeah, but the Snapcrafters tag is kind of 
officially associated with Canonical, even if the people that are in the Snapcrafters group are, are not. They're independent, they're volunteering their time to build those snaps. But they are known to people who are directly employed to work on snaps. So, you know, they're not just random people. They do have uh, that sort of layer of authenticity about them. We got quite a long email from Sam regarding Firefox as a snap on Ubuntu, and he didn't hold back. To me, this is not about make or break of snaps. This is about credibility. With this move, Canonical's credibility took a major hit, and with it, Linux. And that is very, very bad. You don't announce an impacting change a month before the release of a new version of your OS. That's insane. And there is an obvious impact since there is no feature parity at all with the current package. Firefox and Chromium will suffer from known regressions that will hit a lot of organizations, including ours, with no particular way forward and no commitment towards the next LTS. And all this because of a change in packaging format, honestly, an implementation detail. For context, I work for the Belgian government. Our identity card is a smart card that provides authentication and electronic signature functions to all Belgian residents over 18. We have supported Linux for decades. Our code is open source and we provide native packages for many distributions, including Ubuntu, Debian, Mint, Fedora, Red Hat and OpenSUSE. I'm baffled by this and the complete lack of time to even prepare for it, supporting the number of people that we do. To me, Ubuntu just got degraded to a toy OS and we should never rely on it for our critical work. Not because of snaps. This has nothing to do with snaps. This is about governance. I've been using Linux for 20 plus years and Ubuntu is my daily driver for 13 plus years. Trust me when I say I take no joy in writing this email. Well, Sam, reasonable points, except that this is not an LTS that we're talking about. We're talking about an interim release, which is supported for nine months, not 10 years, if you're willing to pay for the extra five, like the LTSs are. These are essentially beta releases, development releases. I don't know quite what you want to call it, but these are not releases that are meant to be used by organizations like yours. They're giving you more than six months heads up on this and testing it in what is officially a proper release. So I'm just not quite having it that this is kind uh, of relegate Ubuntu to a toy OS. I agree with you there, Joe, but I, I think that what Sam's saying is that his users need access to these smart cards, not that his organization does. And so if his users are using the non-LTS version, then they're going to be affected. However, I think that your point stands that, that it is not an LTS and these sorts of changes, when they need to happen, need to happen in a not LTS release. And I also think that this is but one bug, and that is that smart cards don't work. Now, it may be one very big, very impacting bug, but I do think it is just a bug and could be fixed. So I think it's important that this is sort of flagged up to the, the Snap developers and the Ubuntu teams so that they know that they need to get to work on this. And I'm sort of vaguely aware of this problem where Snaps weren't working with smart cards. But I, I didn't really understand what sort of impact it was having on people. So this is useful information. I mean, not to me. I don't care. <laughs> but to people at Canonical who do care, you know, they, they need to know that, that this bug is affecting people. And then somebody like the CTO who cares about these sorts of things will get on with it. Yeah. And so, Sam, my advice is get in touch, file a bug, raise the issue, let them know that there is a problem. And then you've got six months until the LTS comes out for them to fix it. 
and make sure you use your work email address so they know that it is an actual government account. Yeah, exactly. And I don't think we've mentioned, but the Deb is still available as well. So, I mean, their users can still install Firefox in the Deb. Yeah, or you can just pull down the tar, extract it, and run the binary. Yeah. Not ideal, obviously, but a workaround nonetheless. This is Linux. There's always more than one way to do something. Okay, unrelated. Brock wrote to us, Joe, here is an alternative to GIMP or Krita that your wife can try. My wife's experience with photo editing and graphic design was with Photoshop before switching to Linux. She had a hard time with GIMP. This was the solution for her. All of the editing is done locally, so it's fast. And here's the link. Now, I dare one of you to pronounce that fucker. <laughs> photo P. Is it or is it Photopia? <laughs> I know, I know. It's probably Photopia, but it's not open source. No, but you can use it in an open source browser and the editing is local. There's lots of nasty non-free JavaScript or whatever, but at the end of the day, it does work pretty well. And I, it's something I always forget about. I never consider to use a website or web app or whatever you want to call it. I always think that a native application would be the way to do it. But uh, I don't know if I've ever told her about it, so maybe I will uh, mention it next time it comes up. Okay, this episode is sponsored by CBT Nuggets, training for IT professionals or anyone looking to build IT skills. Go to cbtnuggets.com slash late night Linux and sign up for a seven-day free trial. The on-demand virtual labs mean you can build practical experience with the commands, config, scripts, and everything you need to get the most out of each course. Another standout feature is the accountability coaching service, available to all learners with a subscription, which gives you access to a real person who will help you craft a personalized learning plan and set goals, and will check in with you to keep you accountable. So start your free seven-day trial today at cbtnuggets.com slash late-night-linux. It includes unlimited access to all course materials, including virtual labs. That's cbtnuggets.com slash late-night-linux. We've got a message from Matthew. For a young software developer like myself who works a standard job as a React native developer for a large company and has recently made my first small open source change and is working on my second, how do I leverage a relatively newly discovered love of Linux and passion for FOSS in the pursuit of a fulfilling career? In other words, I'm young in my career and having trouble finding the best way to combine my passion projects with my career. Open source can be daunting, and at first glance, as the development and monetization falls on the shoulder of the developer. I can't imagine that I'm the only one out there listening while experiencing some of the same uncertainties. Any advice or direction would be appreciated. Isn't the way to just get involved, do loads of it, and eventually attract the attention of someone who will pay you? I think if you're a superstar, that might work. But I think for the mere mortals, I think you have to find something that you really like doing. And then hopefully it is useful to a lot of people. I think, well, from my perspective, if you try to set out to say, well, I'm going to write this thing and people are going to pay me to do it, you probably have a rude awakening occurring because only if people find what you're doing is valuable and and are they willing to pay for it or if you have a sponsor that does it i don't know how realistic that is for everything i, d I don't mean just start your own project and people will start paying you loads for it what i mean is start contributing to several projects get your work out there on something like github and once you've built up 
a CV of sorts, a, a portfolio of software that you've contributed to that you can link people to, that's going to help you get a job because it doesn't really matter what qualifications you've got. I mean, obviously, certs do definitely help and stuff to some extent, but really, you're judged on the work that you have done and will continue to do. I mean, Will, you're in a position of hiring people, right? So you should be the expert on this. Well, I think the the traditional route to an open source job is that you find a project that you care about, you contribute to it, and then you get hired because you're such an important contributor. You get hired to work on that project by that team. I also think there's a lot of good in having a good GitHub history of, of showing you contributing to open source projects or just writing your own code and putting it out there. I think that that's a really useful way of showcasing your skills. However, I would say that you might want to think carefully about which projects you get associated with in your free time, and do you really want to work for them full-time, 40 hours a week or something? Because it's very easy to slip from, this is my personal passion project and something I really, really care about, to, oh, God, this is just grinding out the work day in, day out. And that's a surefire way to really fall out of love with the things that you're doing. So... I think you need a healthy separation between projects that you care about and you want to work on for fun and expanding your portfolio, as Joe says, of um, open source contributions. If you want to get a job and you're early in your career and you know, you can stand a little bit of um, discomfort in your in your earlier career, find a project you care about that are hiring people, contribute to that project, and you will be discovered by them and they will come to you and ask you if you want a job. I think the key is to be flexible as well. It sounds a bit fucking cliche, but do lots of different things and, you know, try and expand as many of the things you can do so you're not pigeonholed into anything as well. Yeah, and there's so many projects that can do with help, especially for developers, you know, with some skill. And it's a really great way of honing your skill as well as, you know, learning other languages and other frameworks um, and the way that the community works. I wouldn't be in too much of a rush to turn it into a career. Um, I just find projects that I care about and ones that I know I could make a difference on by working on them, by doing stuff that I know needs to be done that fixes my problems. And then I think the rest kind of comes if you get into it and people start to know you and you start socializing with those people and they, you know, they have contacts. Be the one who's not afraid to do the dirty work. Yeah. (laughs) Hund wrote in to say, have you ever considered bridging your chat room to something that's ethical and available for everyone? Something like IRC and or XMPP. Most people don't use Telegram as it requires a phone number and because it's not even open source to begin with. This is just such a difficult one. Yes, of course, we've considered it. But we like an easy life. Like I keep saying, if you want to get your thoughts on the show, email exactly what you did, Hunt, and here you are, your thoughts on the show when I was talking about it. Well, speak for yourself, but myself and Graham are always in the IRC channel. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) It's quite busy. Uh, yeah, and we don't like it bridged. <laughs> That's how we like it. <laughs> a lot unto ourselves we are. That is the compromise that we've come to, is that email is the ultimate open protocol, right? You can send us an email and we'll get it. But if you want something more convenient, then we've got Telegram, which is 
virtually zero maintenance for us, apart from the odd spammer. But now we've got some great volunteers in there who I've trained to ask people what their favorite Taylor Swift album is <laughs> to weed out the miscreants. And uh, it all seems to be working fine, humming along nicely, and we have a chat. And, you know, the arseholes that were around have been banned now, and everything's uh, hunky-dory. Whereas if when you start bridging things, that's where you have technical shit going wrong and having to fucking fix shit. Whereas Telegram's just easy and email is there for people who have an ethical objection to it. And also, I encourage people to email us more because it's a proper open protocol. So that's my answer to it. Email. It rules. Right, well, we better get out of here then. We'll be back next week when we'll probably be talking about what's been going on in the news. But until then, I've been Joe. And I've been Phantom. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later.